Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ringdown, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. A 59-year-old male comes in from triage with difficulty breathing and hypoxia. But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to think about what you would do in such a case. Dr. Jenny Plitt is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and medical simulation faculty here at the University of Arizona. Jenny, thank you for joining us again. Hi, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Matt Berkman is a clinical professor of emergency medicine at the University of Arizona and the medical director of Banner UMC South Campus. Thank you, Matt. Good to be here. And lastly, Dr. Brian Drummond is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine at the U of A. uh, And the reason that 2021 is looking so bright. Welcome, Brian. It's going to be a great year. Renewables are on the rise. Let's go. All right. So the case again, this is a 59-year-old male coming in from triage with difficulty breathing and hypoxia. His temperature is 35.6. His heart rate is 116. Blood pressure is 166 over 100 and a respiratory rate of 40, satting 45% on room air, which is why he is being roomed so quickly. So if you are the doc that's on, Dr. Berkman, uh, what is going through your mind as this patient is being roomed? What, what are your top three considerations for what this patient might be suffering from as you're running over to the room to see him? Well, if you ask me uh, before 2020, the answer is slightly different, but my top three during 2020 is COVID, COVID, COVID. Mm-hmm. But as I'm guessing, this is not a COVID case. We'll go back to prior 2020. And, uh, you know, this, uh, the tachycardia, the low sats, the temperature all make me think of a number of things, but I just go through my standard differential diagnosis that I've had ever since residency for sort of chest pain, shortness of breath things, the big killers. And those are the things that would pop in my head. And those would include a pulmonary embolism. They would include a uh, big bad pneumonia. They would include potentially um, a aortic dissection. They would potentially include a, um, I think we already said flash pulmonary edema. 
um, and uh, potentially esophageal rupture, something of those lines. All of those things potentially would be the first things that would pop my head because those are the immediate life threats. I guess also I would throw in a, a pneumothorax potentially in there um, and ACS. And those would be the big life immediate killers that would pop in my head immediately and try to rule in and out one of those things. Great. And Matt, I'm curious, because we get some of these weird sats quite a bit. How much do you believe a sat of 45% when you get the call for a transfer from another hospital or an urgent care or an EMS ring down and they say, yeah, the sats are 45% on room air? What does that, what does that mean to you? It means a lot. I'm going to say this. Bernie uh, got a lot of credit, one of our old faculty members, for saying vitals are vital. Points for Bernie. Points for Bernie. But the truth is that uh, this is one of the most important things in my mind of being an emergency physician. Patients can say whatever they want, but vital signs are something I pay attention to. They can't make those up. And so when I hear abnormal vital signs, it changes the entire thought process in my head. If somebody's coming in and uh, heart rate's up or it's normal versus SAT's low versus normal, my entire frame of mind, I assume the worst case scenario, and it changes my entire frame of mind of what that patient is going to be like when they show through the door. So on a ring down, I will assume the worst case scenario and get prepared. And if I'm wrong, great. And if not, uh, then we're prepared. All right, Brian, we've gone through multiple cases this year. And I've asked you, are you going straight to the room? Are you going to go grab a sandwich from the cafeteria first? Have we finally gotten your attention enough to where you're going to go meet this patient in the room? You actually have my attention. All right. This is is not a sandwich getter. I I think because you have so many abnormalities of the vitals, I agree. And and to be honest, when you talk about SATs, I I think even if the SAT of 45 is wrong, it's not going to be wrong at 100% when they arrive. It may be wrong at 70%, but it's still an abnormal and it's something that you're going to have to address. So, yes, I have put my sandwich down. I'm getting out of my chair and th- mosing my way towards the patient. Excellent. All right, Jenny, as you're going to the room, you're calling out. You've got an army of residents, uh, nurses, and paramedics. Uh, how are you getting prepared for this case? What are you asking people to go get? Uh, what kind of roles are you assigning for this patient? What are you getting ready for? Well, first and foremost, like Matt said, I'm thinking COVID, COVID, COVID. So I'm going to be getting all of my PPE on and making sure all my residents have all their PPE on before they go to this room. And hopefully, Points for PPE. <laughs> hopefully we have a negative pressure room available also for the same reason. But um, I mean, like Brian and Matt have both said, this patient seems sick. Hopefully they were a page out. And so I'm going to be getting ready to get the patient on the monitor, telling the nurses they need to get the IV, place the patient on oxygen right when they get to the room. I'm going to be getting all of my airway equipment ready, including my CMAC, Bougie, my LMA. Um, I'm going to call RT to be at bedside and get ready to do either vapotherm or BiPAP or intubation, depending on what the patient needs and what they look like. And probably talking with pharmacy too to be ready with our side drugs if if needs be, uh, and maybe even getting the code cart. This patient saturating at forty five percent. I've had a a few patients that they were paged out saturating in the sixties, and when we got them uh, hooked up in the back, they were in the you know upper eighties or nineties. But I agree when a sat's at forty five percent, even if it's off, it's probably probably low. 
So I think that this is definitely someone that gets everyone's attention. And uh, some of the absolute worst resuscitations I've ever been a part of were ones uh, that someone said, ah, that can't be real and did not get prepared for it. Uh, and sure enough, it was real. Uh, and I have often been the one that said, there's no way that's real. Um, all right, so the patient comes in, uh, he's being wheeled in in a wheelchair from triage. He managed to drive himself to the emergency department uh, with SATs in the 40s um, and uh, is sitting bolt upright, uh, but tripoding a little bit forward, uh, speaking only in brief words and has a non-rebreather attached to uh, an oxygen canister. So we move him over to the bed and Jenny, what's your initial approach to this patient? Uh, what are you going to do first? You have an army of nurses. What is the most important thing from kind of, you know, first to last? What are you going to be doing for this guy? So um, I think it's different, I guess, for the nurses and myself. For the nurses, I'm going to be telling them I want them to get um, two large bore IVs on this patient um, he's already on a non-rebreather, so I'm going to be calling RT to come by and up that probably. I'd start with Vapotherm, um, but I'll get to that in a minute, and then just hook them up to the monitor. That's what I want the nursing staff to do. From my standpoint, I'm doing my ABC. So right when he's sitting there in the room, um, if he's sitting there talking, I'm already saying, okay, his airway is intact. Moving on to B, he's clearly in respiratory distress. He's saturating at 45%. How am I going to fix that? And I think it depends on a little bit of history and exam. I would be listening to his lungs right away and just trying to see if, if he's wheezing, if he has crackles, if he looks like he's in uh, fluid overload and um, has rails, because that might change how I get his breathing better. So, I mean, if he's wheezing everywhere and he's got a history of COPD, I'd probably be doing breathing treatments, um, BiPAP, steroids, Epi to help with that. If, if he seems like he's a CHFer and he's very fluid overloaded, um, I'm probably doing BiPAP, um, diuretics, nitro, things like that. So that kind of depends on my lung exam. And then I would also be asking the nurses to do a STAT EKG. I would want a STAT portable chest X-ray and I'd probably be pulling ultrasound into the room. We got all that stuff on their way. Brian is, uh, Jenny is kind of barking out some orders for everybody. Uh, if you're interviewing this patient and you're approaching someone who is only speaking in brief words, um, I feel like we can waste a lot of questions. We can go through a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff. What matters to you besides your typical ample history, allergies, meds, past medical history, last known normal and uh, events leading to the visit? I think I tell the, I try to reassure the patient is the first thing I do. You have someone in respiratory distress and I'm going to say, I just lead with, I'm glad you're here. We're going to take care of you. I'm going to ask you some simple questions, but all I want you to do is focus on breathing. And I tell them that, so I want their focus on breathing. And then I'm really going to say, I'm asking thumbs up, thumbs down questions. And that's what I tell them. I just give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. You don't have to give me answers or anything like that. To, you know, to me, the, the one thing, um, there's two things that I think kill people within a minute to five minutes, and that's dysrhythmias and anaphylaxis. And those are the two not miss ones in this patient. So this, you know, difficulty breathing hypoxemic could be an anaphylaxis uh, with low sats and tachycardia. And so I would try to do a quick assessment of that. 
and I'd want to see an ECG and oxygen. Those would be the three things that I'm looking for. And I'd ask them quick, you know, allergies, histories, have you ever been intubated before? Do you have heart failure? Do you have COPD? And just, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. That's all I want to know. Some basic major um, conditions that could cause uh, this presentation. Um, I'm not asking a social history and whether his grandmother had an MI uh, at 95. So I, I'm really doing big hit questions and doing them with a yes, no response. Uh, and that's all I want to see at the beginning. I feel like timing is important in these. How long has this been going on for? But that's not a yes, no question. So if you can ask him real quick, has this ever happened to you before? Yes. Have you been in our hospital before? Yes. I'm going to go look this up in your chart. Um, has have you had this that brought you to our hospital before? Yes. Okay. I'm going to go read up and see what this is. Even though you still have to consider that even if you have something else, you've got a Borhoff's tear, you've got an aortic dissection, you probably also have COVID right now. So um, and you can, I mean, did, did this start today? You know, that's an easy yes, no um, kind of thumbs up. And I think that makes a big difference if something's building, you know, they start a couple days ago, they can give you a thumbs up or thumbs down. So I, I, it's amazing how many yes, no questions you can get without having someone answer and you can gather a lot of information. I think that uh, we've all seen COVID patients now who the moment they start talking or even some of them, the moment they start moving, their SATs plummet. And so when we're trying to get into this initial phase, you're trying to figure out who's who and what's what, you don't want them, uh, you don't want to get uh, uh, wasted information as you're trying to figure out uh, how to stabilize someone first. So asking some questions that don't involve them uh, speaking is usually a really good idea. So Matt, if you're doing the exam on this guy, uh, what are kind of your priorities? Like what's your real quick exam that's gonna help you figure out which way this guy is going? Um, and what his etiology might be so that you're, uh, you can start working on resuscitating him. Well, you know, it's interesting going back to the COVID year, um, my exam as a, as an attending in all honesty has become less thorough than it used to be. Um, just with my attempt with patients to not want to be in the room as much, um, or as little as possible. Um, but in a case like this, I think it would be essential to get in there and, um, do some key uh, examination techniques. The first one, of course, is just listening to the lungs. That's priority number one, I think, after he's gotten um, on his IVO2 monitor, listen to the lungs and hear what you hear. Uh, people say that the, uh, the exam is dead, but I think you listen to enough lungs and trying to differentiate um, the crackles that you hear was from CHF, from uh, pneumonia. Am I perfect? No, but do I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what one sounds like versus another? I do. So that would be my first thing. And then I'd look for the telltale signs of CHF, which we've been taught for uh, ever and ever, but still haven't changed. I'd look at the neck veins. I would look at um, uh, signs of peripheral edema, any of those things that would suggest that we're going in that direction. Those are the things I would look for. And of course, cardiac exam, um, which is something admittedly this year, COVID year, my use of my stethoscope for all of these things we're talking about is much more limited than it used to be. Um, and it's a, it's a bit of a shame and I hope to get back to it. But um, in the COVID patients, uh, we I have been more limited. 
but getting that stethoscope onto the patient, not only just to see, but maybe before or after we have the EKG, but to see if we have a regular rhythm or irregular rhythm, common things being common. Uh, if this person, we know they're tachycardic, but do we know if they're uh, in a, some kind of dysrhythmia such as AFib that could throw them into flash pulmonary edema? And then, of course, listening for murmurs would be something else that in general, um, as an emergency doc with a noisy room and a very sick patient, I'm not going to hear much. But for something big, bad, and scary, um, I should hopefully be able to hear that, which can point me in a different direction. So that's that's where I really would start off, and then I would use the EKG. And honestly, I do feel like the stat portable chest X-ray is something that absolutely helps me differentiate. Um, I use it a little bit as the physical exam. Um, once I get my initial assessment, I get that stat portable in. I'm a firm believer in getting that in quickly in these types of patients. It can really help me figure out which way to go. Does make a big difference. Although nowadays, as we're having everyone that needs a stat portable chest x-ray, it does lag behind. So I can't say enough. In this case, it actually made a big difference actually listening to the lungs. Um, so I'll give you the very brief history on this patient uh, that uh, he has. Uh, he can't tell you much except that he's been here before, that this started about three hours ago. He doesn't have any pain. He hasn't had any fevers. Um, you can look in his chart and see that he has uh, critical aortic stenosis, congestive heart failure with an EF of 25 to 30%, um, and a negative COVID swab within the last week, which means absolutely nothing. Um, and when you listen to him with your focused exam, he's tachycardic with a regular rhythm. Um, he's got thready pulses, and maybe, because we don't use our stethoscope all that much, maybe he's got a murmur tough to tell. Uh, but you hear these diffuse fine crackles, especially up at the apices. Uh, and he is in severe respiratory distress. His lips look cyanotic. Uh, he's diaphoretic, clammy, and looks like he uh, has those eyes wide open, face of death kind of look. Um, so given all of that, uh, Jenny, what's your top three uh, problems that this guy uh, has? What's your top three in your differential? Okay. So uh, just thinking about his history and your exam with his history of critical aortic stenosis and CHF and crackles, I'm thinking he's having uh, pulmonary edema um, and critical worsening of his aortic stenosis. Um, the other thing I would think about is COVID. And then my other one, if we're excluding pulmonary pulmonary edema slash CHF, um, I would probably put uh, pneumonia. Okay. Ryan, top three. I think those are pretty reasonable. I mean, pul pulmonary edema, if you have cra you're painting a pretty good pulmonary edema picture and sudden onset, so maybe more of a flash pulmonary edema than I forgot my Lasix for the last week. Um, you know, I, I, I agree. I think you know, Jenny's kind of guessing at pneumonia too. It's hard, right? Because he didn't have a fever. He's not really coughing and such a sudden onset. I mean, even with COVID, that's, it's rare that we see someone who had no symptoms and then went from zero to 80 in uh, three hours with COVID. I feel it's, there's at least a few days of uh, declining status and, and usually more. So I, I think those are um, all reasonable. Matt, I would, for you? yeah, I would have to throw in PE just because PE is always there always lurking in the shadows. And it's always when I think it's something else, it's a PE. 
And anybody who comes in tachycardic with a rest rate of 40 and SATs of 45, I don't care what their lung exam is. It's absolutely, I mean, I agree with all that Jenny said, but I would throw in PE for sure in this uh, differential highly um, with, with those numbers. Oh, well, it's definitely in my differential. I just didn't have it in my top three. Fair. So Matt's going to take him to the scanner, it sounds like. Yep. And so uh, one of the things that we think about in this case is he does have diffuse fine crackles. He's got some chronic disease that might actually be one of the things that is uh, uh, contributing to this. It kind of leans you toward one place or the other. So you're not necessarily going to say this guy can't have a PE because he is so sick that I think that it's reasonable to work it up. But also your pretest probability is that he's probably got a few other things instead that probably warrant more management. And so is this a guy that even though he might have a PE, would you heparinize this guy before you get the CT scan? Brian, no. I can't hear your head shake. No, I would not. No. Is he somebody that you're just going to Lasix and, uh, you know, put nitric on before you get any further imaging because you think he's got heart failure? I would get, I think you can give a nitro tab or spray mm -hmm. to just about any patient. I think it's different when you're saying put nitro on them. If you're implying like a paste, I wouldn't put a paste on him, but a single dose of nitro, you know, even if we think of like a massive right ventricular, MI that is even reverse that nitro goes away so fast you could give some fluid your pressure may drop but he has pressure to move so yeah. a single dose of a nitro in 160 over one teens you're not going to send them to 50 over 20 mm -hmm. you know that's just not going to happen so if you're really worried with heart failure and a single dose of nitro is and recheck of pressure is not unreasonable to do I agree with Brian and these patients that have severe aortic stenosis um, and even with flash pulmonary edema, there was a study put out by Clavo et al. showing that uh, they compared patients that had severe aortic stenosis to not having stenosis, um, PPM, nitro, and they noted that there wasn't any clinically significant or profound hypotension that was caused by that dose of nitro. Um, so I think it's actually, unless the patient's hypotensive, probably okay to try a little, um, bit of nitrate. I think some other good meds, again, thinking of aortic stenosis and pulmonary edema, because aortic stenosis is a very preload dependent lesion would be like sodium nitroprusside. And there is a paper published on that in the journal of emergency medicine, and it's been used with aortic stenosis, um, and patients with pulmonary their arteries over their veins. All right. And then Matt, I'll put this one up on a T for you. Is this guy septic? Does he need blood cultures and antibiotics? That's just not fair. It's just not fair. But, but to be honest with you, that's fine. You can put it on whatever T you want. Absolutely. I would treat this guy uh, an undifferentiated guy coming in with this, his temperature is 35.6, 100% undifferentiated like this. I would absolutely do lactate antibiotics and blood cultures on this patient. I would, without question, do that. Yep. Would and you this do 30 is 30 cc's per kilo? I'm sorry? Would you do 30 cc's per kilo? No, I wouldn't, not until I get some more information. I mean, the other thing about this is, you know, making these decisions. I think it's reasonable to do some um, some uh, preliminary treatments, such as maybe BiPAP preliminarily, the nitro that Brian talked about, which I agree with, because 
all of these are, this case is going to be really simple in about, uh, uh, you know, 30 to 60 minutes when we get some more data back. But right now in undifferentiated, I think these standard processes, um, the LMNOP of CHF potentially including positive pressure while we're trying to get a, a touch of more information is totally reasonable. Um, but undifferentiated patient like this, for sure, I would do that. And I think um, uh, the data for giving antibiotics in undifferentiated uh, patients uh, would support that. And I agree. I mean, there's literature that says that we are not very good at figuring out who's septic and who's not. And it's the patients that we usually pigeonhole that they definitely have one thing that end up doing really poorly from sepsis. So risk versus benefit on a guy like this who's super sick. What if he's got, you know, we always say COVID and of like, yeah, you probably have something else and COVID. We're all super comfortable with that, but we're sometimes neglect. Oh, yeah, he's probably got a PE and sepsis. Uh, he's probably got CHF and sepsis. Uh, the days, I, I will declare the days of antibiotic stewardship over in the emergency <laughs> department where we, we just aren't good at figuring out who's whom. So- I got I to gotta weigh in on that for a second because I, I disagree with that. I think it's absolutely um, something that's very important. That being said, to, to continue to be stewards of, uh, of appropriate antibiotic use, that being said, in a patient who comes in this sick, and this is, you know, like we've always talked about, 95% of your patients aren't truly sick by any definition that an emergency doctor would use. This patient is. And I think these are the patients where the stewardship um, – goes out the window a little bit. But I think in other areas, I don't, I, I think it still is in, in our role as emergency doctors. I think you want to prioritize though, in terms of when we're talking antibiotics, just have this in your head. The antibiotics can go in in the first hour and you're not wrong in any way. Mm-hmm. There should be other medicines and therapies that you are pushing because say your nurse only has one line. That should not be for Vank and it should not be for Ceftriaxone. It should be something else because the, you know, the sepsis is not going to make this person worse in the first hour. Um, you know, there's other things that you should be on and treating. And if you're not, then you're, you're missing the boat on the sepsis. So the key is just prioritizing, right? What is your treatment? You know, that's what we do. We have to prioritize. If we only have one line, if the nurse can only go get one thing at a time, which do you want them to do first? And, and that's why that it's important to have some idea clinically, what do you think this patient have? What is your top three? Because if you think that this patient is septic and that's why they're so sick, then you have to prioritize sepsis treatment with fluids and antibiotics and pressors and everything else that we need to do, check lactate levels. Uh, but if you think this patient has pulmonary edema, then sure, give the antibiotics, but you need to prioritize what you think is clinically going on first. So with a score of Dr. Plitt in the lead with 13, Dr. Drummond with 11, and Dr. Berkman with 10, we move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So brief recap of the case. This is a 59-year-old male coming in from triage with difficulty breathing and hypoxia for three hours. He denies any pain or fevers, but can't give you a full history because he's having a really hard time breathing. From the chart, past medical history of severe aortic stenosis, uh, CHF with an EF of 25 to 30%. 
hypertension, and a recent negative cardiac cath two weeks ago with normal, normal coronaries. Um, he uh, has a recent negative COVID test, and they're planning uh, for a uh, aortic valve replacement. He's on Coreg, Lasix, Lopressor, and Losartan. Uh, he has no allergies, and he is far too sick for a review of systems to be anything, anything useful. Um, his vital signs, his temperature is 36.0. His heart rate is 125. Blood pressure is 164 over 109. His respiratory rate is 45, and he is now satting 85% on a 15-liter non-rebreather. He is ill, sweaty, and in severe distress. Skin is clammy without any rash, but he did have some cyanosis around his lips that's resolved on the non-rebreather. Uh, pupils are equal, tachycardic regular rhythm, harsh systolic ejection murmur once you get him a little bit happier uh, with thready pulses, Defi diffuse fine crackles and severe respiratory distress and two plus pitting edema in his legs. He is alert, very wide-eyed, but answers yes or no questions. So as we kind of move on to the interventions, which most of us want to intervene right away. So the priority for this patient who's now 85% on a non-rebreather is probably gonna lean more towards uh, breathing, ventilation and oxygenation. So the question we asked and the question I ask you is BiPAP or high flow nasal cannula? Which way are you going to go on this patient and why? BiPAP. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna jump on you, Aaron, because I think Matt recognized something earlier about that. I think we are missing on a regular basis on these patients is looking for JVD, because that is one of the number one things. And that was not mentioned in the history and physical, which means it was not done by you, Aaron Leach. It must have been done by a medical student. No, they would get it. It must be done by a third year resident who's about to graduate. That's who did this exam. But JVD and actually. For heart failure, JVD, and if you look in the JAMA clinical series, hepatic jugular reflux is your number one predictor in terms of heart failure. So if you had to do one physical exam finding, hepatic jugular reflux would be what you'd want. The second physical exam you would do would be listening for an S3. And I will say that most of us are really not good at an S3, and we're probably better at ultrasounding the heart than doing an S3. But look for hepatic jugular reflux that really can help you out in these patients. So BiPAP is my answer uh, over high flow, but JVD. I, I agree with uh, Brian. I think I would do BiPAP on this, this patient. I mean, BiPAP would be my go-to if this was heart failure without aortic stenosis because it helps with afterload reduction and, and it does reduce preload which I think in this patient is the concern because he has severe aortic stenosis, which again is a preload dependent lesion. So you're at risk for decreasing his preload. But at the same time, I mean, it's something you can easily put him on BiPAP, take him off BiPAP, you're monitoring him, you're monitoring for hypotension. Um, and that, that afterload reduction might help quite a bit with his pulmonary edema. So I think that's what I would do too. And I would say with the BiPAP, you know, I'll give a quick historical, but I think BiPAP should be the first thing you put on an undifferentiated uh, shortness of breath patient. So when they rolled in, I hope, you know, we asked about what equipment do you have? I would rather have BiPAP than a non-rebreather because again, you could take it off if you want to. It's a great pre-oxygenation technique if you're going to intubate the patient, but it works for so many things. I think um, 
you know, that's important, right? It's okay if you gave it to a COPD or it's okay if you gave it to an asthmatic. It's okay. Even if they have a PE, you're not going to like, oh my gosh, I killed you because I put you on BiPAP in it, my initial evaluation for a PE. But, you know, there was a time, and Matt can relate to this um, as well, when you didn't have BiPAP in the ER. You had BiPAP in a closet in the ICU, and it took about two to three hours to get it. Uh, and I remember doing medical director stuff. And the fact is, in like the 2000s, we were ordering BiPAP machines for the emergency room, and it was a difference maker. I mean, it dropped our number of intubations, I would probably say, by a half to two-thirds um, in patients. But to have that accessibility nowadays, you have to understand that is a huge huge jump in shortness of breath evaluations and treatment. So, Yeah, I don't have much to add um, other than, yes, I would also go with BiPAP. It is my go-to. A lot of what Brian said, um, I think it's it's a great place to start while you're trying to suss some things out. Um, it's uh, no harm, no foul, and oftentimes can be the difference maker. Um, the only caveat to that I'll say is um, – and this goes back kind of what Brian was saying earlier about his thumbs up, thumbs down. These patients in respiratory distress, they are often um, fighting not just their uh, lung pathology, but also their fear. It is such an anxiety provoking experience to not be able to breathe effectively. And so the ability to put something on their face sometimes can help them. But once it's on, I always say, I communicate them directly and I say, I don't want you to even try to talk. We're going to, and I do the same thing as Brian. I was like, we're going to do yes, no's. You can give me thumbs up, thumbs down, but assessing their ability to deal with the BiPAP. Um, I'm always make sure I try to make sure I'm in the room because some patients just can't handle that. And um, that doesn't go well, but uh, that would be my uh, go-to BiPAP, just like everybody else is saying. So what do you say to a patient when you put the BiPAP over their face and they say, I can't breathe? I try to describe it like I say, now this is going to be really weird. We're going to put this mask over you, but it's like scuba diving. So I know that's a silly, you know, you're scuba Steve, but I, you know, we put a mask on ourselves and go underwater. So I try to explain it like that. I said, it's going to feel like you're in a wind tunnel. Your mouth is going to get dry. Your nose is going to get dry, but this will help you out. Um, and if you're having trouble with it, we can take it off at any time. And if you want, I can even give you some medicine to kind of take the edge off. Not their Xanax, but something maybe different. Yes, definitely not their Xanax. That's the last <laughs> thing you're going to give them before they code. If they don't choke on the pill as you're trying to give them, uh, as you're, they're trying to swallow it. So, all right. So there's a couple of things that everybody called out for. They wanted an EKG. They wanted a uh, heart ultrasound, bedside pocus. Um, EKG shows a rate of 99. Uh, QRS, it was wide. Uh, and ST elevation, about two millimeters in V1 and V2 with some inferior ST depression. When we did the pocus, there were diffuse B lines and just very poor function with an EF of maybe about 10%. Um, X-rays on their way. And they've got an IV. Um, they're getting some blood work on the guy. Uh, anything special you want besides uh, uh, CBC, BMP, blood gas? Is it any help you'll get from a BNP on this patient, seeing if they're in heart failure? I mean, I think they're clearly clinically in heart failure, so you don't need a BNP, but uh, they might want to trend it when he gets admitted. Um, 
So I think they're I'm not a big BNP fan. <laughs> I think it, you know, this was, I was around when BNPs came out and the whole point of a BNP was to truly differentiate who was heart failure and who was COPD and those mixed patients or they had both. And everyone who had a high BNP, they clinically looked like heart failure. And everyone who didn't have a high BNP clinically looked like COPD. And when you had a mixed picture, it was like 350 to 900. And it didn't help you at all. And it's been proven. If you look at like a lot of the literature, the BNP is not a great differentiator for acute heart failure or COPD, the undifferentiated shortness patients. And so we still continue to order this stupid test because uh, people want it ordered and they trend it. And whatever that makes sense, I don't know. Um, imagine you have a dialysis patient. Have you had dialysis patients with normal BNPs? Not usually. <laughs> They're almost always up. So, you know, again, that's another time it's even more useless than an undifferentiated patient. But there's good literature on this. Um, if you want to order it, you know, whatever. Bloodlet the patient. It's fine. <laughs> so we get this patient on BiPAP. We start them at just uh, something simple, 15 over 5. Uh, we get the patient's work of breathing a lot easier. Um, the SATs have kind of come up. They're in the mid nineties now he's breathing more in the twenties. So he seems like he's probably stabilized a bit. Um, you get your chest x-ray, there's right greater than left opacities and just diffuse pulmonary edema with actually a pretty normal sized heart on chest x-ray, not a terribly large, uh, flabby, uh, cardiomyopathy that you can tell. Um, so, uh, given this, uh, this patient that we have here, uh, we had the EKG that shows ST elevation of V1 and V2 with inferior ST depression. Are you going to call a STEMI on this patient? Well, I mean, without looking at the EKG um, specifically, uh, but if I have that reading that I have ST elevation with which sounds like reciprocal changes in someone with severe pulmonary edema, uh, I, I would be very tempted and they're sick as they are, I would be very tempted to do so. Um, you know, obviously it's, I would at least communicate with a cardiologist potentially on this type of patient, especially with the history of aortic stenosis, because um, if it is as bad as I think it's going to be, I may not be able to do the things I need to do to truly fix this patient. And I will need intervention of my colleagues. And so, especially with that reading of an EKG, um, I don't think I can swallow my pride and they can tell me I'm wrong, but it's somebody I might get them involved. I would get them involved sooner rather than later. So I think I would. Right. I would too. I mean, it meets criteria for a STEMI in the septal leads. Um, unless I really was thinking, you know, it couldn't be, I, I agree with Matt. I would at least be talking with cardiology. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're clearly going to be need to be involved in this patient's care to take a look at it. I would too. I mean, I think that this is a finesse point of, um, you know, if it's at night, I'd fax it to the cardiologist. I wouldn't wake the whole cath lab up. Um, and probably I'd do the same in the daytime. So, you, you know, you're taking kind of weekend, daytime, nighttime into, because it's, you know, you're like, okay, this is meeting criteria. Um, you know, is this patient even going to tolerate the cath lab, right? They're gonna have to lay flat. So if this person can't lay flat, do I need to call the cath lab because they're sitting there and they won't lay flat? That's going to, maybe they can do it with the radial and they can do them sitting up. Um, but I, I think, you know, another cause of acute heart failure could easily be um, a STEMI. You know, you get a sudden 
Um, shortness of breath or a papillary muscle rupture could do this um, where your AS is so limited, you know, limiting. And now you've got another valve issue on top of the AS. So you've got some backflow, maybe a mitral regurg or something. And now you're going to get really in, in sick condition. So I think that's not unreasonable to talk to the cardiologist with this. And if you don't, you better have a pretty good reason with that EKG read, that's going to be hard to explain away. So Matt, let me ask you from the medical director uh, standpoint uh, for some of our listeners that are out in private practice or residents that are going to go out and practice on their own. um, This patient had a normal cath two weeks ago. And if you opt not to call this as a STEMI, uh, uh, so to speak, how does that affect some of the hospital things down the line? If this patient met the criteria ends up needing PCI and they call the STEMI later. Is this a big deal from a hospital or a medical director standpoint, or is it something you can say, Hey, look, I did the best that I, or what I thought was right for the patient. Well, I I can tell you from a uh, medical director point of view, but more medical legally speaking, I mean, classically uh, historically, this may have shifted in the, in the, the, the recent past, but the number one reason why we all got sued was missed MIs. And so uh, that has been banged into us over and over again. And so somebody coming in this sick with that EKG read, and for instance, you know, Brian is right. Um, this is a, um, uh, a little bit of nuance here. However, I'm confident that everybody on this, uh, this podcast would absolutely call them in 24-7 if there were tombstones sitting on there. Classic. They call them in. You can't mess around with that read let there. So um, I think medical legally and uh, standard of care wise, you're absolutely obligated to involve others with um, a sick patient who has an EKG, which meets criteria. Um, clearly, if uh, it turns out, despite the negative cath two weeks ago, that that is the cause and you didn't call them in, as Brian said, there's no way to explain that away. Um, this, is, this is standard of care emergency medicine intern level. You see that you got to get them involved because um, that is the absolute standard of care. Yeah. Our jobs are to be sensitive, I think, more than they are to be specific. So excellent point. Well, I think too, when you say clean coronaries, you know, we we talk about that. What's a clean (laughs) coronary? Is it 0%, 30%, 50%? Because, right, when when the cardiologists really intervene, 70 to 90. Um, But they'll put 50 or 30% all the time right? And that's just a radiographic change in the vessel diameter. And then what do we know about STEMIs is most STEMIs come from unstable plaques that actually grow out and not radiographically narrowing. So the more concerning lesion would be the 30 to 50% lesion. But in medicine, we say, well, that's clean coronaries. We're not going to do anything. You know, it's, it's, it's doublespeak, but it's hard with a lot of this stuff in terms of when a patient says my coronaries were clean or it says in the chart, you know, we didn't do a catheter or we did a catheterization, but we didn't intervene. You know, it's how we interpret um, this jargon. You, you just, it's, you just got to think it through and what it really means. Well, we paged this out as a STEMI and the cath lab is coming down uh, and uh, your lovely pharmacist or pharmacista is uh, there with some meds for you. And they say, what do you want to do to try to manage this patient who uh, appears to have decompensated heart failure? I mean, I think this patient is very unique and poses a lot of problems. Um, in terms of the heart failure, I, 
I mean, patients with aortic stenosis, that's severe, they have a fixed cardiac output and they can't meaningfully increase that to meet demands for critical illness. So kind of the cornerstones of your management are avoiding hypotension, maintaining sinus rhythm, avoiding excessive tachycardia, avoiding excessive bradycardia, normalizing um, a lot of things like that. So I think your biggest job is really just to keep monitoring this patient. You can try things like sodium nitroprusside to help with afterload. You could try nitroglycerin, but keep an eye on their blood pressure. You can try giving small boluses of fluid, even though that could push them in the other direction. Um, I think it's just really important that you're continuing to monitor this patient and keep an eye on them. And you can, you know, if you need to, you can give vasopressors. Um, you can do dobutamine, uh, dobutamine for inotropy or phenylephrine. Um, and that's actually, I was actually surprised to read, like phenylephrine even though it's counterintuitive because it increases your systemic vasculature um, and afterload. But you, if you think about aortic stenosis, the afterload is at the level of the aortic valve and there's very little contribution to the systemic vasculature. So it actually increases your diastolic blood pressure and your coronary perfusion and can cause like a reflex bradycardia. So that might be helpful in this situation, but I think you just need to overall keep an eye on everything with this patient and to make sure that don't get hypotensive, don't get hypertensive, don't get bradycardic, don't get tachycardic um, to overall help with that um, pulmonary edema and everything. Just make Listen, them Goldilocks, you want your porridge too hot or too cold? That's right. <laughs> no, this, this is a very uh, a tricky situation. So the vast majority of patients who show up in congestive heart failure are not going to present us with the, <clears throat> the, the gift of, oh, I have uh, critical aortic stenosis. And so we're going to go through uh, our standard approach to congestive heart failure, even if they have aortic stenosis, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to do the classic LMNOP, which we all learned in med school. You're going to potentially do your Lasix. You're going to do your, well, it was morphine, oxygen, nitrates, and those types of things. Um, and then positive pressure are the big, the big mainstays. In this case, we've been given the gift of having a was a harsh murmur and a known history, so it does change the situation slightly. Um, but I agree with what uh, Jenny was saying in that it it really and what Brian was saying it is a sort of a Goldilocks. There's it's a very tight balance in dealing with these patients. But I think at the end of the day, uh, for patients these this sick, it is really about our the essence of what we do truly of stabilization and getting them to those who can fix them in the end. Because if this truly is a uh, disastrous aortic stenosis um, exacerbation, we can stabilize, but at the end of the day, they're going to need somebody else's help. And that's our job to stabilize and get them that help. I think that's an excellent point with uh, this patient who has known critical AS and is they're planning for a, a, a TAVR. Uh, does this patient need it now? Is that how bad it is? And one of the things to always consider when you hear murmurs, which is not a super common occurrence in the emergency department, uh, when you hear murmurs, uh, that means that blood is flowing. And so if you've got somebody with critical AS and you don't hear the murmur, 
that makes me even more concerned that blood is not flowing the way that it's supposed to. And that might be a patient who that pinhole is slowly closing, that turbulence is not there. So the fact that we hear a murmur in this patient is actually somewhat reassuring. Uh, the fact that uh, they have uh, that ST elevation and the inferior, um, uh, inferior ST depression can actually be a sign of heart strain in patients with critical AS and can be a common finding rather than a true STEMI. But that's something I th think we let the cardiologist sort out. Yeah, I think that um, Matt made a good point in terms of the basic treatments for heart failure to me is BiPAP, nitro, um, consider an ACE inhibitor if you're super hypertensive and then Lasix if you think they're fluid overloaded because you're really trying to say are they fluid overloaded or is the fluid in the wrong spot. Um, and, and once you take that basic approach, those are going to be your starts. The nuances is when your patient is going from a heart failure state to a, a true like end of stage uh, heart disease where they are in heart failure, not just congestive heart failure, but truly failing and then that's where like Jenny's hitting in. I mean, I use a, an ultrasound in those, but if you have a true cardiac failure um, patient, those are probably some of the hardest patients that I've ever had to take care of. Um, and a right heart is even worse than a left heart. Yeah. And so in those patients, it's every drug you give is going to have a harm and a benefit. And you are balancing out the harm and benefit of each drug and to an effect that you want. If you think they're going too fast and slowing them down, we'll get a better stroke volume. You may try to work, do some rate control. If you think that the pressure on the diastolic or the systolic side needs to be adjusted, you will use a presser or vasodilator that you think is going to make the best. If you need squeeze, you know, you're going to use a dobutamine or a melanone. Um, but these are really hard and every drug that you give can get you more behind. So you should think before you're using those drugs and have a true, um, a true guided approach in uh, what you're doing. Well, I will say in terms of drugs in general in these patients, I want things that go away quickly. So nitroglycerin, great. If you want to start a nitro drip, you can turn it off and it's gone. If you're going to use a rate control agent, I would use Esmolol. Um, because you can turn that on and off and it's gone. Um, so just have things that are go away quickly. This is not someone you should be pushing like labetalol boluses or something like that. You want on off drugs um, for your uh, goal and, and have, I agree, do it with the cardiologist. You know, as Matt said, they are going to be the ones that are going to fix this. Um, you know, if it is an AS, um, if you're by yourself, best that you can do. So as Brian said, Jenny and Matt made some excellent points. So I'll give the point to Jenny and Matt. Um, Absolutely. However, Brian also made some excellent points. The most important point, I think, at this point is if you've got a patient that is, you know, is this unique circumstance, uh, the way that this patient is, work with the team that is going to be taking over care. There's no doubt this patient needs a cardiologist. Uh, the question is whether they need a cardiothoracic surgeon or whether they need uh, something uh, that's going to be even, you know, more within these uh, within these fine lines of not tipping them over uh, be, with their critical AS. So I think working with the cardiologist when they come down sounds like a wonderful idea. 
so uh, as we're getting ready, there's no doubt in anyone's mind, this patient's going to the ICU. And at the end of uh, the workup, we have Dr. Plitt and Dr. Drummond tied at 27, Dr. Berkman at 19, Dr. Plitt and Dr. Drummond are going to work, uh, move on to the dispo. Matt, thank you very much for your participation and your awesome contributions. And we're going to move on now to the dispo. During the dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And, of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. All right, so to recap the case, this is a 59-year-old male uh, who comes in, uh, with a history of severe aortic stenosis, who comes in with uh, hypoxia and difficulty breathing. Um, he initially presented with severe hypoxia, now uh, up to, uh, was up to 78% on a non-rebreather, now up to the mid-90s on 15 over 5 with BiPAP. Uh, his work of breathing is much improved. His CBC is fairly unremarkable, except for uh, H&H of 19 and 59. Uh, his BMP shows normal electrolytes, little bit of pre-renal azotemia with a BUN of 33 over with a creatinine of 1.5. Um, his uh, pH on his VBG was 7.18 uh, and his PCO2 was 79 prior to BiPAP with a lactate of 4.6. His troponin is 536. And his BNP was thirty uh, was three thousand eight hundred and twenty eight. Chest X ray showed pulmonary edema with right greater than left opacities. Uh, point of care ultrasound showed B lines and a poor EF uh, with an EKG showing ST elevation of V one and V two with inferior ST depression. So, Dr. Drummond, you're on taking care of this patient. You've done a wonderful job getting him stabilized. And the cardiologists uh, with their giant uh, posse come in and uh, start asking questions about the patients. First of all, where is this EKG? And then tell me a little bit about this patient. Dr. Hart, here's your EKG. Um, so Mr. Stentz, a 59-year-old guy who came in to us with severe pulmonary edema, he was hypoxemic, tripoding, SATs were in the 40s. Um, he has a history of heart failure and uh, is planned to undergo a TAVER for his severe aortic stenosis. So we initially, um, on the assessment, he told us it had been going on for about three days or three hours, excuse me, and we put him on some BiPAP and um, got an EKG. And on his EKG, he has some uh, signs concerning for a STEMI with some ST depression greater than a millimeter in V1 and V2 with reciprocal ST segment depression. And he had had a clean cath uh, two weeks ago. And so, but as you know, with a uh, clean uh, coronaries, you know, you can still have an unstable lesion. And given his abrupt presentation, um, we were concerned and wanted to have you look with these uh, new EKG findings and figured even if um, you're not asking and do the uh, TAVER sooner than later, um, since you're one of our best cardiologists and interventionalists on staff. Oh, well, I appreciate the pep talk. That really makes me feel good about myself. But uh, did the patient get aspirin, heparin yet? 
We are, uh, after we put them on the BiPAP, we have some aspirin at bedside, but we wanted to continue the BiPAP right away. I didn't take it off. Um, I think he's probably to a point where he can uh, chew it. And the heparin we have here, we just hadn't pushed it yet in case you guys were thinking that he would need uh, cardiobypass surgery. Um, Because if that's the case, we can call the CT surgeons. They may not want us doing the heparin if they're cutting his chest open. Uh, I guess that makes sense. Uh, You know, this kind of looks like a strain pattern that I've seen with AS. And, you know, he's critical AS. He does need his TAVR. Um, I don't know. What what was his trope? Did that come back yet? His trope is 536. Uh, uh, I don't know. That could still be just, just type 2. Um, are we certain this guy is not COVID? Uh, we've done a COVID test here, which is pending currently. Um, he recently was checked for COVID, but you're right. You could have COVID and a STEMI, COVID and a TAVR. Everyone's got COVID, so we all just have to be careful. And I'm so glad you're already in your PPE when you showed up at bedside. Yeah, I actually don't know where my N95 is. Uh, I haven't seen it in a couple of weeks. So I still have the same one uh, because I usually don't need to go into the cath lab. I've got fellows and residents that do most of this stuff for me. And I stand behind four inches of plexiglass. Um, you could use my, I have an N9500 if you want that one. Ooh, that sounds fancy. Um, you know, I, he had a clean cath two weeks ago. Uh, this looks like strain pattern. I think this is type two and STEMI. And I don't know, this guy doesn't have COVID. I don't really want to take him to the cath lab. So I'd rather just kind of trend this and admit him to MICU. Um, so I don't think we're going to take him right now. Well, if you want to, uh, you know, refuse to take someone who meets STEMI criteria and needs a TAVR to the cath lab that, uh, I mean, I'm happy to do that. I can call the medicine hospitalist. They'll be happy to admit him, but they'll be grumpy. I mean, I just, you know, it's your own criteria you created. I, I can't go back on it. Even, you know, I'll just take him and do his, uh, why don't you just do the um, valve and then squirt the vessels while you're there. Um, you know, let's just get the valve done because even if he, if he doesn't have COVID now, he's probably going to get it soon. And, you know, tomorrow's the weekend. I thought you'd want to get it done now before, uh, your Saturday golf game. Gosh, you make so much sense with this. Uh, all right. Well, maybe we can do a right heart cath while we're in there too. Fine. We already got the STEMI activated. We'll go ahead and take him, but, uh, just because we're not sure he's not COVID and he came in so hypoxic, uh, will you go ahead and admit him to MICU and then we'll take him to the cath lab? Sure, I can call the MICU. All right. Dr. Plitt, that uh, role has been handed over to you. So if you could please call the MICU and let them know why they're admitting a cardiac patient. All right. Hi, this is uh, Dr. Plitt in the emergency room. I have a 59-year-old male with a history of severe aortic stenosis and uh, CHF who is coming in with acute dyspnea and hypoxia at a 45%. Um, He was tachycardic and in respiratory distress, found to have some fluid overload and pulmonary edema uh, concerning, um, and his bedside echoes concerning for severe aortic stenosis. His EKG also showed a possible STEMI, um, and he has an elevated troponin for which we consulted cardiology, who feels like this is a type 2 N-STEMI. We have placed him on BiPAP, and he's actually doing a lot better. We've... um, uh, we would like to admit him to your service for your expertise. I think he will likely need an aortic valve replacement sooner than previously thought. 
Man, all of this stuff sounds like it doesn't sound like COVID. All of this stuff sounds like a guy who's got heart problems. I mean, why doesn't the cardiologist want to admit this patient who very clearly has cardiac disease? Well, he just has a very complicated history. Um, and, you know, he's going to need just very close hemodynamic monitoring, um, which you guys are fantastic at. He probably is going to need close monitoring of his fluid bolses and nitroprusside and maybe nitrates and Lasix. Um, and potentially he could also have COVID. So I think you guys would be excellent uh, at taking care of him. Well, I mean, why don't you call the cardiologist back and say that they need to take the patient because it sounds like it's primary cardiac and then we can, you know, like consult if they need us. So why don't you just call them back and say that they need to take the patient? Well, they, um, you know, this patient had a clean cath a couple of weeks ago. Um, they feel pretty confident that this is a type 2 NSTEMI. But if you would like, I can actually give you their pager number so that you guys can talk to each other and um, figure out who would be best to take care of this patient. Uh, all right. Well, I guess that makes sense. I will call and talk to them. And I'll probably just take the patient because I really like the way you say nitroprusside. Um <laughs> Okay, I'll take so the page. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you both very much for some excellent calls. Uh, I appreciate Dr. Drummond uh, letting the cardiologist know that a STEMI has criteria and that uh, it's their call and not his call. Uh, not that I've ever had a cardiologist ask my opinion on a STEMI or <laughs> anything for that matter. Uh, and Dr. Plitt does an excellent job of smoothing that uh, middleman position by saying, you know, I think maybe you two should talk to each other rather than having me play, uh, uh, play the uh, uh, small child of a fighting family member um, trying to go back and forth in between. So uh, at the end of the dispo, Dr. Plitt is this month's winner, progressive. <laughs> And congratulations, Jenny, and take it away. Victory is mine, finally. <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to talk with you guys about transvenous pacing because it's really fun. And because we don't have the sim lab open now, um, I feel like we can just talk about it. So transcutaneous pacing, there's lots of problems. It's not comfortable for the patient. It has, you know, the pads don't stick on. You have to shave their hair. Um, you know, they need sedatives. So what do we do? Transvenous pacing. And who do we do it on? Patients with unstable bradycardia, third degree, heart block, things like that. So this is actually a very simple procedure that you guys can do. Um, you just need to get your six French cordis, and mostly because the wire fits very snugly through the six French, whereas the nine French cordis that we have in the kits is just too big. And you're going to go in the right IJ or the left subclavian because it's the most direct to the right ventricle. Um, and then you put your little schwandum on. That's what I like to call that accordion uh, plastic sheath. The hub attaches to the, the cordis so that you can put the wire through and it's sterile. And then what I like to do, I skip the whole EKG method because I think it's an extra step and it's very confusing. So I just hook the pacemaker wire directly to your generator pass the chip through the sterile sleeve into the cordis until you get to 20 centimeters. Then you can just turn the electricity on um, and push it a little bit deeper to 30 centimeters. 
and just look at your monitor. How do you know you're in the right spot? You should see a pacemaker spike followed by a wide QRS complex. The heart rate should improve. Feel for a pulse. You should get mechanical capture. Um, that's skipping the EKG step. And then you can also use ultrasound to just look at the heart while you're doing this and see if your wire is in the ventricle. Um, and then I like to call this honey badger mode because I heard that before. Um, don't screw around with sensitivity and all that with your pacemaker generator. Just set your rate to 80, your ventricular output to 20. Take sensitivity to asynchronous, honey badger. You're just going to hit that ventricle again and again and again until it's pacing. And voila, you're done. I can't decide if I liked honey badger mode or schwandam better, but that was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank, Thank you, everybody. You. Happy New Year. Hopefully a better year as we start to see the decline. May all of your second COVID vaccines uh, be quick and relatively painless. And we will talk to everyone next month. Have a good one. Bye.